Amen. Thank you, Preston. So I wanted to start this morning by reading a parable of contentment by John Ortberg. I will read this piece in an English accent because all great pieces of literature should be done in an English accent. Once there was a young girl whose parents took her to the shrine of the Golden Arches. There she saw an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that someone in a fit of marketing genius named a Happy Meal. May I have it, please, she asked her parents. I must have it. I don't think I could live without it. Nay, her parents told her, the toy is a trivial thing that just enabled the price of this package to be raised beyond what it's really worth. It's not in the budget. We can't do it. But you don't understand, she thought. She knew that they would not just be buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. They would be buying happiness. She was convinced that she had a little McVacuum at the core of her soul. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in a happy meal. So she explained, I want the Happy Meal more than I've ever wanted anything before, and if I get it, I'll never ask for anything again, ever. No more complaining, no more demanding. If you get me that Happy Meal, I'll be content for the rest of my life. This seemed like a pretty good deal to her parents, so they bought it, and it worked. She grew up to be a contented, grateful, joyful woman, and she lived with serenity and grace, her life in many ways was hard. The man she married turned out to be a louse, and he abandoned her with three small children and no money. The kids, too, were a disappointment. They dropped out of school, sponged off her meager resources, and eventually left without a trace. When she was an old woman, Social Security gave out, and she had to live from hand to mouth. Ah, but she never complained. She had gotten the Happy Meal. She would think of it often. I remember that happy meal, she'd say to herself. What great joy I found there. <laughs> Just as she had predicted, it brought her lasting satisfaction. She was grateful the rest of her life. The end. <laughs> so you would think that after a while, children would catch on, that they would that they would think, you know what, these Happy Meals really don't bring lasting joy and contentment. I'm not going to get suckered into this anymore. Of course, children are naive, and only a child would be foolish enough to believe that something novel could bring lasting contentment. Or maybe, as we age, we're not getting any smarter. Our Happy Meals just come with leather interior and 30-year mortgages. <laughs> Our scripture today says, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. In John 4, 31 through 34, we see the disciples urging Jesus. They say, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replies, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. He goes on to say, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. But then in Matthew 11, Jesus says, starting in verse 18, for John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say he's possessed by a demon. 
The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. So John pulled away from the crowd to fast and pray, and you said he's demon-possessed. While Jesus, who also pulled away from the crowd to fast and pray, had more of a reputation for engaging the crowd and hanging out with them to the point that he was called a drunkard and a glutton. And the moral of the story is really haters are going to hate and critics are going to criticize, but wisdom is shown to be right by its results. Did the crowd influence Jesus or did Jesus influence the crowd? The answer is in the results. Jesus didn't lay down his reputation. He traded owners. He took it from the hands of the people, and he placed it squarely in the hands of his father. He simply wanted God's approval more than he wanted men's approval. And in offering up his reputation to God, Jesus withdrew from finding contentment through people-pleasing. Because we all know that that game is exhausting. And we all know that if you're busy making everyone happy, you're not accomplishing anything. See, the scripture again says, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Contentment for the Christian should never depend on plenty or lack. With having it all or having nothing. With being full or being hungry. Contentment comes by learning to steward all we have or don't have back to God. There's nothing inherently holy about abject poverty. There's not. I grew up in a home that was poor. Not middle class, not lower middle class, poor. Um, Not the poorest of the poor. I had a roof over my head. But I grew up in a home in Sulphur Springs, Texas. Small small home, two-bedroom. No central heat in there. We had a wood-burning stove. And there are many mornings I would wake up with ice on the inside of my window. Now, I'm not saying that uh, to make me sound like, oh, I've lived this hard life. I've I've lived a great life. Perhaps better than some, perhaps worse than others. But I can tell you from growing up in that, there's nothing holy about abject poverty. Here's what I do know. By offering up our lack to God, it opens up the door to finding contentment with little. Because on the same token that nothing's inherently holy about poverty, my wife and I have also had the opportunity to have a relationship with uh, the sisters at Prayer Town, uh, which is out by uh, Boys Ranch. And these Franciscan sisters, part of their vow is a vow of poverty. Now, nothing's holy about being broke. But there is something holy about offering up. I need nothing but Christ. Contentment comes when we offer back to Christ whatever situation we're in. There's nothing inherently holy about abundant wealth. Uh, We've all heard uh, Rick tell stories about the time he was in ministry in Plano and he would sit across the desk from many people, rich businessmen, wealthy people, continuing to live the game while losing it all and not knowing 
what to do with it. Or having great wealth and not having any idea how to invest it, how to take care of themselves, what to do with it. Thinking wealth would bring them contentment and it only brought them more problems. But offering up our wealth and our possessions to God opens the door to finding contentment with much. See, normal in the world's economy is it's never enough. When I'm wearing the crown, it's never enough. When I'm king, it's never enough. When we're on the throne, it's never enough. For the homeless and those in abject poverty, it's never enough. For the middle class and the Wall Street tycoon, it's never enough. For the drug addict, it's never enough. For the worn out mom, it's never enough. For the sex addict, it's never enough. For the burned out pastor, it's never enough. The failing student, it's never enough. For the Princeton graduate, it's never enough. For the CEO who was just promoted, it's never enough. In this world's economy, it's never enough. It's never enough. First, we have to define what it is, and we have to find, define what enough is. It. What are we talking about? It's never enough. Whatever we're stuffing in that God-shaped hole is never enough. What's enough? Contentment. Whatever we're stuffing in that God-shaped hole will never bring contentment. And that's what we're talking about. That's the definition. So I want to spend the remainder of our time today learning. I've learned how to be content. I have learned the secret of living in every situation. Every one of us in this room, for better or for worse, are the results of habits and daily practices that we've learned and that we've applied. You are right now, your habits, everything that you're doing was perfect to bring you to exactly where you are right now. And if you're like, I hate where I'm at right now, your habits got you there. If you're like, I'm wonderfully happy and content with where I'm at right now, your habits got you there. I can tell who eats right and who works out. It shows up in your habits. I can tell who trains and corrects their children. It shows up in their habits. I can tell who deeply loves and respects their spouse. It shows up in your habits. It's not magical. All these things show up and bear fruit, or lack of it, by the habits and the principles that we consistently apply or don't apply. But either way, they are habits. In the church world, we might call them spiritual disciplines. So here's five practices for every Christian learning to live a life of contentment in Christ. These are the next steps. So if you want to take out that Connect card that you filled out at the beginning... On the back of it is a place for next steps. You might want to write some of these down, or you can write them down on a separate piece of paper and take them with you, but I challenge you today to write at least one of these down when you turn that in, just to keep yourself accountable, to hold yourself accountable to do something different this next week. If normal feels like never enough, number one, Live in moderation. Learn to live in moderation. 
Learn to live a life where your identity and your joy and your contentment is detached and separate from the things that you possess. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, abbreviated, says, Don't store up treasures here on earth. Store your treasures in heaven. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Now, I'm not talking about this morning, heaven the place. I believe in that. I believe heaven is a place. But I'm speaking about not the mansion in the sky, but heaven the economy. Finding contentment more in the things that are eternal and outside of time. Remember Rick's rope analogy from last week. We worry about this part, and this is our life. This is the eternal part that we should be concerned with. When I'm talking about the economy of heaven, I'm talking about thinking about those things and living in moderation and living in a way where you're thinking about the rest of your life, not this small time here on earth. I love books. I hoard books. I enjoy having a library of books, but I realized not long ago that books, although great tools, I'm going to continue to read them. I'm going to continue to buy books, but I realized I have bought more books now, and there's more books on my bookshelf, I think, than I'll ever be able to read in my lifetime. I don't need to buy any more books. If I'd read the ones that I have, I'd be pretty wise, but I realized, what if people became my books? What if I started learning as much from interacting with people I meet as much or more than I do from the books that I read? That's my example of how moderation might look in my life. You probably have your own. What if people became my books? What if I stopped investing in things that it's not eternal? Some of the wisdom that comes from them may be eternal, but what about if I stopped investing in paper and started investing in people and learning from people. Number two, if normal feels like never enough, put up boundaries. And balance and flexibility make good boundaries. They make the good foundation for boundaries. Balance. Avoid a lopsided life in regard to work, study, rest, food, Uh, Putting things in the right time and place and learning to say no and not apologizing for not being able to be physically two places at the same time. I was at an apprentice conference up in Kansas with Linda Graybill two or three years ago, and I remember they were speaking about time management and, and boundaries in your time. And this gentleman, they they were having sort of a discussion on stage, and one guy asked the other, he said, don't you ever find it hard or, or, or like an inner conflict when someone says, can you do this or can you do this? And you say no so often? He said, no. I put it down on my calendar. And he said, and then when someone asks me if I can be at this place, I look at my calendar. And if there's something there, then I say no. And he said, doesn't that make you feel guilty? He said, why would I feel guilty about not being able to be two places at the same time? That's impossible. So why would I feel guilt over trying to do something that's impossible? I just remember that punching me in the face. I was like, that's amazing. 
It's kind of crazy to feel guilty about something that's impossible. On the other hand, or perhaps paradoxically, balance also requires flexibility. The ability to bend without breaking. Every fence needs a gate to keep the bad out at the good end. And it's our, to our detriment and a sign of our arrogance if we believe we're always right and everyone else is the problem. Have you ever met someone that everybody else is the problem? All these people are crazy. I mean, I just keep running into crazy people all day long. How do you know if you're the one that's inflexible? Well, I got this quote, and I had to change it up a little bit because it had a word in it I didn't like. But it said, if you run into a jerk in the morning, you ran into a jerk. But if you run into jerks all day long, you're the jerk. (laughs) So always look at what the common denominator is as it relates to relationships and being content. Oftentimes, the common denominator is looking at us in the mirror. If normal feels like never enough, number three, learn to live in the present moment. Never in history have we been more disconnected while being more connected. I can be present with you in body, but be 200 miles away through texting or social media, not content with the people that are in the room with me. We're also a people more connected or concerned with the future and what's next than what's now. Tomorrow's more important than today. And sometimes we get enamored with the past, the way it used to be. All our back in the day I used to, or remember when, and it keeps us from living in the present. But guess what? The outcome of not living present is if you get sick, no one from the future is going to come help you. And if you're lonely, no one from the past is going to come visit you. And if you fall down, the only thing that someone from Facebook can do is send you a frowny face emoji. Number four, develop a generous spirit. And by generous spirit, I want us to think past the two things we always think of when we talk about generosity, time and money. What if we started donating more than our time and our money? Living generously. So what are some things we could do to give what we normally don't think of? What if we gave our humility and admitted our mistakes? What if we gave our respect and stood when a woman walked into the room or someone older proceeded to sit down at our table? What if we gave our mercy the next time we felt judgmental about someone's body or their behavior? What if we gave our forgiveness to someone before they had to ask or beg for it? What if we gave our service to someone that could not return the favor? What if we gave our gratitude and refrained from grumbling and gossip and instead, all day long, we decided to compliment people? Look for life and look for light and let's stop adding to the darkness. And finally, spend time with God. And by that, I mean two things. Scripture and prayer. But I have a couple of ideas on those. Number one, in Scripture, here's a doable goal. Because so often we go through plans of reading long sections of Scripture, and there's a benefit to that. But there's also a benefit 
to reading until you hit a verse that really resonates with you and then stop and then read that verse again and then read it again and then pray or speak that scripture out loud and ask God to bring it back up to you throughout the day and ruminate on it like a cow that chews the could all day long thinking about that scripture, chewing on it and letting it minister to you. And then prayer. Prayer gets a bad rap. Prayer has been made to be something that only the pros can do. But I think prayer is really just talking and listening. It's conversation with God. So it is speaking, but then it's being quiet and listening. And then it's speaking, and then it's being quiet and listening. And then it's speaking, and it's being quiet and listening. And if you don't know what to pray, I have three of my favorite prayers. You can have them. I stole them from somebody else, so you can too. The first one is, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And sometimes throughout the day I'll say that because even right now, being bivocational, I'm on a huge learning curve. And there'll be times, many times throughout the day, I'm like, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Or if that's too much to remember, another one of my favorite prayers is, oh, God, help. (laughs) I've prayed that one a lot lately as well. And finally, and I really encourage you to do this one. Hey, God, do something really cool for Charlie. Lord, I pray when he preaches in the modern service, you'd light him up. Pray that when you're in Walmart over the cashier. But pray, also add to that, but Lord, if you need to use me to help, I'm willing. Let's pray.